0: sometimes I wonder what I would own if I didn't know what you owned. Have you ever thought about this? Like, sometimes I wonder what it was I, what I would actually buy if I didn't know all the things you had bought, and I wonder what it is I would want if you weren't influencing what I want, if I wasn't paying attention to what you were doing. Another way to ask that question is this, what would I do with my money if I didn't know what everyone else did with their money? Have you ever thought about this? I wonder if I would save more if I didn't know what all of you were doing with your money. And I wonder if I would give more and meet more needs and help people and live on less if I didn't know what all was going on in your world and in your life. And it's so easy to see everything now because there's social media. So, you know, we don't even have to talk. I can just see what you post. And suddenly I know what you're doing and where you're going and what you're buying and you know, kind of all the things going on in your world, and there's just something that causes you to wonder, it doesn't. There's something that causes you to start wanting some things that you didn't even know you wanted before until you saw somebody else had it, and then all of a sudden you wanted it. In other words, basically what I'm saying is, uh, knowing too much can cause a little bit of a problem. Knowing too much can, can create some very, very dangerous discontent. Knowing too much can lead us to have a mortgage that's bigger than what we need, it can lead us to buy some things that we don't even really have to have, and then our house gets all cluttered, and then later on we're selling things for a fraction of the price that we bought them, even though we've hardly even used them. No, you know, when, Knowing things can lead us to make a lot of choices that we otherwise might not make. And so I've spent a lot of time lately thinking about this question. What would I do with my money if I didn't know what everybody else did with their money? And I think I might do some things differently. And the more I think about it, the more I talk about it, the more I, I contemplate how you influence what I do with my money, it makes me realize I think I need to go to counseling. You guys are pretty powerful. So, you know, it's, it's one of those deals that just impacts us all, doesn't it, in some different ways. So we're in the middle of this guardrail series, and this is right smack in the middle of the series. And if you're just joining us or you know, you've, you've slept since the last time we talked and you can't remember what we're talking about, a guardrail is this. We all know what a guardrail is. A guardrail is a system designed to keep vehicles from straying into dangerous or off-limits areas. And the thing that makes guardrails so effective, they're pre-planned. That's, this is an intentional system, but what makes the system works so well is the fact that guardrails are always placed in the safety zone. They're never placed in the danger zone. In other words, the point of a guardrail is not to get the guardrail as close to the edge and ledge of disaster as we can put it. The point of a guardrail is to pull that guardrail back and stick it as, you know, far back as we need to in the safety zone. So if we hit it, there's some minimal damage, but there's, there's very little risk of us ending up in some severe danger. That is how guardrails work. And the reason they work so well is because guardrails are designed to direct and protect, to direct us on where we need to go, to protect us from where we shouldn't. Now, my premise, my suggestion throughout this series has simply been this, that we don't just need guardrails on the road, we need some guardrails in life too, we need some guardrails in life, that we all need some emotional guardrails. We all need some financial guardrails. We all need, and many of us need, some professional guardrails. We all need some morality guardrails. All of us need guardrails in different arenas Of our lives. And when I talk about guardrails for life, here's how we've been defining it. A guardrail is a personal standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience. So it's not a black and white thing. Guardrails are not, well, that's right and that's wrong, or that's sinful and that's not sinful. That's not the way a guardrail works. Guardrails are a personal standard of behavior. So your guardrails are going to look different than mine. That's why I can't get up here every week and say, well, here are the guardrails you've got to have. No, you've got to figure that out for yourself. You've got to ask yourself, okay, in light of my past experiences, in light of my present circumstances, in light of all of my future hopes and dreams, okay, what is the wise thing for me to do? What, what are the wise behaviors for me to have and what are the wise behaviors for me to avoid? Where do I need to put some guardrails so that when I hit them, I haven't done any significant damage. I haven't really done anything wrong. But when I hit them and when I realize, oh, I'm starting to drift and, oh, I'm starting to do that and, oh, I'm starting to lean that way, it lights up my conscience. It gets my attention and I never end up in danger. Now today, here's what I want to do. I want to tackle one that's going to be interesting to convince you that you need Because as we talk about these guardrails, as we talk about this particular arena of life, you are going to immediately think of people that you will say, oh, I hope they're paying attention, or oh, I wish they were here, or oh, I'm getting on the app and I'm sharing that message with them. Like You are going to know people who need these guardrails. It just, for most of us, it won't intuitively be you, and it won't intuitively be me. But I'm telling you, this one is true for all of us. I want to spend a few minutes talking about what it looks like to have guardrails in the arena of our finances in the arena of our finances now when i talk about financial guardrails here's what i'm not saying i am not saying you need financial guardrails if you're just if you got consumer debt and you just you know you're constantly charging things and you you never you know I'm, uh, you do need financial guardrails but it's not just for people like you i'm not talking about those of you who live paycheck to paycheck and you're just barely getting by you need some financial guardrails this isn't just for you because then i'll make the case why in a minute but you can have zero financial stress in your life. You can have plenty of margin. You can have plenty of money in the bank. Your retirement can be set. You can have so much that you never, never, never need to worry about how you're going to feed your family or pay your bills, or, you know, pay the mortgage, whatever. You, you can have so much that none of that crosses your mind. And you might still be in danger when it comes to your money. In other words, having plenty, having enough, having accomplished all the financial dreams you want does not insulate you from the potential for major financial harm. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a minute. All of us, though, need some financial guardrails. So here's how I want you to process this. If you're not a follower of Jesus or you're skeptical of faith, you're not a church person, however you would describe yourself, here's the beauty of today. You're going to hear some really, really good common sense financial advice that is taught in Scripture But you don't even have to believe in Scripture in order for it to work for you, okay? So you're going to hear some great stuff. And the beauty of today is if you're not a follower of Jesus, all of this is optional for you. You are not obligated to to take what I talk about and to apply any of it, okay? So you can pick and choose what you want. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, what we're going to talk about today is an obligation. What we're going to talk about today isn't really optional for this reason. Because your faith and your finances, my faith and my finances, they are inseparably linked, Scripture teaches, Jesus actually taught, you'll see this in a second, it is impossible for you and I to fully follow Jesus, for you and I to be fully surrendered, and I told you at the beginning of the series, my goal for you is not just to put guardrails in place so you live a better life. My goal for us is that we'll live a surrendered life where we just trust our Heavenly Father enough, we want to stay on His path. Well, it's impossible to live a fully surrendered life and not have financial guardrails in place and not have figured out how to overcome the danger and the temptation that comes with finances. And the reason that's true is because of something Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. He said, no one can serve two masters, to which we all go, oh, I, don't even, I don't have one master, much less two. I mean, that's, that's first century talk that we don't have to deal with that today. I got some bosses, but I don't have any masters. No, no, here's the thing. When Jesus talked about master, it carried the sense of ownership with it. And Jesus is making a point, and you're going to see this in a minute, Jesus is making a point that all of us are owned or controlled by something. In other words, there is, there is some, and for some of us it's multiple. There are several influences, and we don't always identify them. We don't always realize they're there. But below the surface, it's just like an operating system that runs and influences and controls and directs the decisions we make and the things we do in life. So Jesus says, you can't have two of those. Like, you, everybody serves something or someone, Everybody does. But you serve two of something or someone, and you have some major problems. Why, Jesus, is that such a big deal? He goes on. He says, either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Because there is such a strong relationship between what you open the door of your life to and allow to influence you, allow to direct you, allow to control your decisions, if you will. There's such a strong relationship between you and that thing. Whatever that thing is, That another way to think of it is it's at the center of your life. You don't want to call it a master, okay? But it's at the center of your life. There's such a strong relationship between you and what you put at the center of your life that two things can't be there. They are competing rivals if you try to put two things there. And Jesus said, I have noticed in the people who follow me, this is a big problem. Specifically, the problem is this. He said, you cannot serve both God and money. It's so interesting to me he would say this. From Jesus' point of view, the number one competition that God has for your heart is your money, or this word that he used for money could also be translated your stuff. Just think about everything that falls under your financial umbrella, your money and your possessions. Jesus said the number one competition that God has for being at the center of your life is your money, and it's your stuff. Now, this is why I said just a moment ago. It doesn't matter how much or how little you have. We all need financial guardrails, and we're all in danger when it comes to the arena of our finances because the primary issue isn't money. It's mastery. The primary issue isn't money. When Jesus talked about this, he wasn't concerned about how much or how little money you have. To him, the primary issue isn't money. The primary issue is mastery. It's mastery. It's who you've got at the center. It's who owns you, influences you, controls you. Now, here's what happens when you're mastered by money. Whenever you're mastered by money, you always end up in one of two places. You end up driving off the cliff of consumption or you end up driving into the rock wall of hoarding. Those are the two options. When you're mastered by money, you end up in one of two dangerous places. I'm going to drive off the cliff of consumption, which is the idea of I want more, I want more, I want more, I want more. Or you're going to drive into the wall of hoarding. I need more, I need more, I need more, I need more. This is where it goes. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, some of you are thinking, it's really raining outside. That's what you're thinking right now, isn't it? It is pouring. Aren't you glad you're in here? Now, so here's the thing when we talk about mastery. Most of us, when we hear this think, well, I'm not, I'm not mastered by anything. Are you kidding me? I'm sure not mastered by my money. My money doesn't control me. My money doesn't own me. Are you kidding? Okay, let me ask you a question that clears this up. I want you to think about this past week. In the last seven days, have you spent more time reflecting on, thinking about, considering where God is at work around you, how he's wanting you to join him in that work, and how he wants to use you to love and serve others and point others to him? Or have you spent more time in the last seven days thinking about your money and your possessions, how you're going to pay that bill? Or how you're going to get more of that or how you're going to get another that or how you're going to save up so you can go there? Have you spent more time thinking about what God's doing in and around you or have you spent more time thinking about, well, do I have enough for retirement and, well, am I planning enough and what about, and, oh, I'm just paycheck. You 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 just answer that question in your mind. That'll tell you what masters you. Whatever you think about the most, that's what controls you. Whatever you think about the most, that's what masters you to which most of us go, last week was an unusual week. I don't don't think that's, you know, okay, just pick the week before, the week before, the week before. I mean, the reality is for most of us, we're far more influenced. We don't like to use the word, but we are far more mastered by our money and our possessions than we would like to admit. And I'm telling you, what happens when you are mastered by your money and possessions is you become consumed with one of two things, maybe both of them. You become consumed by unbridled appetite and or unbridled fear. The unbridled appetite of, I I just think I need one more thing. I think I need another. I think I need a better. I think I need to upgrade. And it never satisfies. It's because appetites are never fully or finally satisfied. You feed an appetite, what happens? It grows. It doesn't go away. It grows. And some of us are driving ourselves off the cliff of consumption just trying to get one more thing and one more thing and one more thing, and we get the thing that we thought, oh, my gosh, if I had it, then I'd be so happy, and then there's something else we want. Or we drive ourselves right into the wall of hoarding. I just don't think I have enough. This is unbridled fear. No matter how much you have, I'm not sure I've got enough. No matter how much you have, I think I need to save a little more. I think I need to invest a little more. I think I need to hold on to a little more. I might need that one day. Unbridled appetite, unbridled fear, they tend to run rampant in our hearts. We don't even realize it because it's so normal. It's just the way everybody operates. But it's a sign. It's a sign that you've been mastered. I mean, think about it this way. If, if you could, for most of you, for some of you, you need to shorten the time span, okay? But for most of you, if we could go back 20 years in time and talk to your 20-year younger self and tell your 20-year younger self everything you have today, the amount of money you make today, the kind of lifestyle you live today, the kind of house you live in today, if we told your 20-year younger self that, what would your 20-year younger self say to you? Your 20-year younger self would look at you and say, oh my gosh, you've got it made. Because you dreamt 20 years ago of having the very thing you have today and you thought, if I just have that, then I'll I'll never need anything else. If I just make that much, oh my gosh, I'd, I'd be rich. I'd have so much. Now here you are, and you're not content, are you? You still want a little more. There's this unbridled appetite. I need, I need more. I want more. I want another. I want another. There's this unbridled fear. I'm not sure I've got enough. When the reality is, for 99.9% of us, we are going to run out of life before we run out of money. We are. In other words, you're going to die before your bank account hits zero. But we never feel like we have enough, even though we're going to end up leaving some behind. That is what mastery looks like. That is the control, the influence that money and possessions tend to have on us. But it's so normal, it's so, so common, we don't even think twice about it. And Jesus says, no, no, you've got to hit pause. And you've got to consider this. Because it's having a profound effect on your life and on your relationships. You don't even realize it. And it's going to drive you off the cliff of consumption. It's going to drive you into the wall of hoarding. You're not even going to see the danger coming. The primary issue, it's not about money. The primary issue is about mastery. It's about figuring out. If you're going to allow this unbridled fear, this unbridled appetite to continue to drive you. So here was Jesus' solution to it all. It's so simple, it's, it's almost insulting, to be honest with you. Jesus looks at his crowd and he says this, so don't worry. Okay, I'm telling you, you shouldn't have this competition going in your heart. So don't worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear. Now those are the three big things in the first century you worried about. Those are the three big things they weren't certain they would have tomorrow and the next day and the next day. For most of us, this isn't what we're concerned about having. So you just fill in the blanks with whatever you want. I'm I'm worried about fill in the blank. I'm afraid that fill in the blank. Because you've had these conversations. You've used those phrases. If not with somebody, you've at least thought them in your mind. Well, I'm worried about, I'm afraid that. You just fill in the blank. Jesus says, okay, all those things that you're worried about and afraid that, you shouldn't worry about them. Because the minute you allow those to consume you, you're going to live. With closed hands, and you're going to live with a closed heart. And suddenly you have some major issues on your hands. He goes on. He says, for the pagans run after all these things. Now, pagan's not a term we use today. But pagan basically meant anyone who didn't believe in the one true God. In a Jewish world, that's what a pagan meant, okay? A pagan was someone who believed there were multiple gods. But here was the catch. Even though there were many gods, they didn't believe any of those gods actually cared about them personally. As a matter of fact, their concern was this. Their concern was, okay, what am I going to have to do to keep that God happy? But that God could care less about me. That God is not personal in any way. So a pagan uh, pagan didn't think they could look to their God and trust their God to take care of them. No, a pagan believed if it's going to be, it's up to me. Like, I've got to look out for myself and take care of me first or nobody's going to do it. That's what a pagan believed. That's how a pagan lived. Now, if you believe that, It is going to lead you to live very differently than how Jesus invites us to live. Because Jesus says, no, no, you don't need to live that way. The pagans run after all those things. But there's another way to live. There's another belief, another truth you can hold on to. He says, in your heavenly Father, he knows that you need them. Now, if we could just actually grab hold of this one idea and believe it, I'm telling you, it would change the way you approach the rest of your life. Not just your money, the rest of your life. If you actually believed that God in heaven invites you to call him heavenly father, and he cares about you like a perfect father would care about his son or his daughter. If you actually believed that he loved you unconditionally, that he was for you, and he wanted what's best for you then you wouldn't worry about any of the things that you worry about and you wouldn't be afraid of any of the things you're afraid of. When it comes to your money and possessions, you wouldn't have a care in the world because you would be 100% confident that whenever you have a need, whatever it is, oh, that's a serious need, your heavenly Father would step in and he would provide for you. Jesus says that's his promise. That's his promise. But it's hard to live that way because we don't believe that. And yet, the invitation Jesus is about to make to us is if we will simply put God and this truth at the center of our lives and let that drive all of our decision-making, our life will look radically different. Here's how Jesus summed it up. He said, but seek first. here's, Here's what it looks like to quit worrying about providing everything for yourself and assuming it's all up to you. You seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus says, here's the promise from your heavenly Father. You just keep him at the center, and like any good father, he'll take care of whatever you need. You just trust him. That's what it means to put him at the center. You just trust him more than you trust anyone or anything else, and he'll provide Whatever you need. Now, here's what's so interesting about this verse, and it's what makes this so confusing. We don't live in a world of kingdoms, do we? We don't don't live in a world of kingdoms. And so we read that and we think, well, I don't even know exactly what that means to seek first his kingdom. Well, here's all it means God's kingdom is an other centered kingdom. To seek first his kingdom means I'm going to live my life through the lens or through the grid or through the filter of how God views this world. I'm going to live my life not by the values that come naturally to me. I'm going to live my life by my Heavenly Father's values. I'm going to do what Dad would want me to do. And I know what Dad approves of and what he doesn't approve of. I know what Dad thinks is wise and what he thinks is not wise. So I'm going to live my my life by those values and from his perspective. And God's perspective and God's values are all about an other-centered kingdom. So he says, if you'll seek first... To live for others above yourself, then I'll take care of whatever it is you need. Now, what's interesting about this is there are an order of priorities. He used the term first, doesn't he? He says, no, you've got to seek this above everything. Not in conjunction with, like there can't be competition. Because you can't serve both God and money. And this is where it becomes so difficult. Jesus invites us in, but he says, here's the hard part. You have to remove money and possessions. And all those I'm worried about and I'm afraid that and I just want one more and I just need one more of this and I'm not sure I've got enough of that, you got to move all that out of the way. To put your heavenly Father's focus on others above it all. To put meeting the needs of others about, above meeting your own. And if you can make that very difficult transition, if you can take that step of trust and faith, you're going to see God intersect in your world and in your life in a totally new way. So when it comes to figuring out what masters your life, according to Jesus, you just look at your priorities when it comes to your money, when it comes to your finances. You can see if money controls you or if you control it by how you prioritize it. Now here's what's normal when it comes to priorities. We live and then we save and then we give. This is this is normal in America. All the research shows this, but you know it just from your own life and from the lives of the people around you. This is how Americans live. We live first, got to take care of my needs and whatever I want to do with my money. Now I'm going to save a little bit. I'm going to try to put it back. I'm not good at saving, so I'm just going to tell my business or my company, you know, my employer, just take it out of my check. Don't even let me see it or I'll spend it. You know, some of you, that's what you do. But I'm going to to save a little bit. I'm going to stick it back. And then with whatever I've got left when I get to the end, I'm going to give some. Because I do care and I do, I want to, again, this is what we say. Man, I, I want to be able to help out there. Oh, I want to be more generous. Oh, I'd love to be able to meet that need. I just don't have, I just don't have any extra. I don't have any extra, but if I had extra, or when I have extra, one day, someday, okay, I'll do it. This is how most of us live. Now, this is normal, but this is dangerous, and I'm gonna explain to you why real simply, all right? It's dangerous because this is about me, me, and finally others. Living is all about me, saving is all about me. Oh, I finally got around to giving, if I got any extra, I will, and now I'm gonna think of somebody else this is a picture of what it looks like to seek first a self-centered me-centric kingdom it's it's me me and others are at the bottom this is all about consume now okay i'm just gonna i'm gonna take everything that comes in and i'm gonna start by consuming now consuming now consuming now i want more of that and need that and would like to upgrade that so i'm gonna consume now consume now Oh, I'm going to put some money back, which is a good thing. I'm not knocking savings, but savings is all about consuming later. I don't know if you've thought of it that way. I'm going to spend some of it now and consume now, and then I'm going to save some of it. Why? Because I want to consume it later. So I'm just going to hold off my consumption, but I'm still going to consume. It's still going to be all about me. Now, here's the problem with living this way, okay? Here's the problem with living this way. When you live to consume, you're living as if there is no God. Track with me. When it's all about consume now, consume later, consume now, consume later, consume now, consume later, I am living as if this life is all there is to life. I am living as if the most important thing about life is what I can consume now or what I can consume later on this side of eternity. I'm basically living... As if there is no God and there is no eternity and nothing that I do today with the money and possessions God puts in my hand is going to have any impact on eternity. I'm assuming this life is all there is. There is no God. I'm ignoring everything Jesus taught. Which if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's fine. You have the option to do that. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this is so hypocritical of us. We don't think of it this way because it's normal. But what we're, what we're doing, the way we're living is we're sending the message, we're acting as if. Nothing Jesus said is actually true. There is no God. There is no eternity. None of this, what we do now, is going to matter then. So I'll just consume now, consume later, consume now, consume later, and suck all I can out of this life for me. And then here's the kicker for those of us who are Christians. Here's the kicker. Then we come in to a service or an experience like today, and we raise our hands and we sing the songs And we read our Bibles and we pray our prayers and we get in our Bible studies and we do all those things and we talk about how we're so devoted and we're so committed and how much we love Jesus and how we're so grateful. But we're just being hypocrites. We're just pretending and posing. Because when you look at how we actually live our lives, we're we're not doing anything with the most valuable thing to us, our money and in some cases our time. We're doing nothing with it to show we believe God is real and we believe what he says is true. So we declare it and raise our hands and sing our songs and do our whole deal, and then we go out and keep making it all about a me-first, me-centric kingdom. I'm going to consume now and consume later. And we never learn to seek first God's other-centered, others-focused kingdom. So this is why we need financial guardrails. It's why it doesn't matter how much or how little money you have because money is powerful. It's not bad. It's not evil. It's just powerful. And it can be used for good, it can be an incredible tool, but it is a terrible, terrible master. And if you're not careful because money is so powerful, money will master you. If you live first, save second, and then give, I guarantee you money will master you. It's going to. But you're not even going to realize it because it's normal in our culture. If I could somehow drop you in a culture that viewed their finances differently, you'd stand out and you'd see quickly. Matter of fact, some of you have had this experience. You have gone on some type of mission trip or overseas experience where you lived among or worked with people who had next to nothing financially. And yet they were extraordinarily generous. And you're like, oh my goodness. It's like, there's a totally different way to view money and possessions. And you realize, what is wrong with me in my heart? Like, this is not how I feel. This is not how I live. This is not what I do. And you saw it. You got a glimpse of it. And then you came back to American culture. And I'm not knocking. It's just the way it is. You just come back to American culture And we get immersed again in this me-centric, me-focused consumer mindset. And it seems normal. And we don't even see what it's doing to our hearts. And we, we miss what it's doing to our relationships with others and to our relationship with God. So we need some financial guardrails, some financial guardrails so when we bump up against them, it gets our attention and we realize, oh my gosh, I'm starting to drift towards the cliff of consumption. I didn't even realize it. I'm headed straight for that wall of hoarding and, oh, i got to have more and i got to have more. I didn't even realize it. We need some guardrails to help us with that. So what I want to do is I want to give you a structure for those guardrails. And I can't tell you what guardrails you need, but I will give you some questions to help you figure out what financial guardrails you need that will begin to free your heart from the control of money, that will help you get to the point where you use money for good. But money's not your master. Jesus taught that the structure for our financial guardrails is just to flip what we all do. Instead of live, save, and give, you give first, you save second, and then you live on the rest. This is all you have to do. It's so hard to do. It's so simple to understand, isn't it? You give first, you save second, and you live on the rest. Now, you're pretty good at this. I don't think I have to explain to you how to do that. We've all got that down, right? You're pretty good at this. You at least know what you need to do. It's not hard to save. You just pick a percentage of every paycheck that you're going to put back and not spend. You can figure out what percentage you need that to be. This one is the one that we all struggle with the most. So I want to give you some questions to ask yourself, to help you figure out what guardrails you need to put in place in order to learn how to give first. And the reason this is so powerful is because generosity is the only thing that will break the assumption it's all for your consumption. Generosity is the only thing that will break the power money and possessions have. It's the only thing that will break the power of mastery that it can have over us. So let me give you three questions. You might want to jot these down on your phone or whatever. And you can, you know, if you're married or you're dating or something, you may want to talk about them. Otherwise, if you're single, you can talk about them with a friend. But these are some things that you probably don't just want to sit down and try to figure out on your own. You've got to figure out with somebody. Here's the first question. When it comes to giving first, say, well, how often should I give? How often should I give? This one is simple because it has to be the top priority. And if it's not the top priority, then it's not going to work. So the answer to this is simply give every time you get money. This is what you should do. You should learn that every time money comes in your hand, the first thought you should have is, okay, I'm going to give a certain amount of this away. Every time money comes in, every paycheck Every unexpected bonus, every side job you didn't see coming, you know, every time money comes in. Okay, I'm just, the first thing I'm going to do with this money, because there are a lot of things I want to do with it, and I'm already thinking about all the things I could do with it, but the first thing I'm going to do with it is I'm going to give part of it away. That's how often you ought to give. Because sporadic, spontaneous generosity does not break the assumption it's all for your consumption. It just doesn't. It makes you feel really good, and it convinces you you're generous when you're really not. The only thing that breaks the mastery of money in your heart and in mine is when you develop a habit of consistent, priority, generosity. Every time I get money, I'm going to give it. Every time I get money, I'm going to give it. So that's the first question. That's an easy one. Second one is how much. This is where you're going to have to spend some time thinking. Okay, well, if I'm going to take some of everything that comes in, I'm going to give it away. Well, how much should I give? What's generous? Well, here's my answer to that. Pick a percentage. I'm not gonna tell you what generosity looks like. You pick a percentage. Do not, and if you've been around here, you've heard me say this, do not pick a dollar amount. Because you're gonna pick a dollar amount, land on a dollar amount, never change that dollar amount, and that dollar amount's gonna sound so generous to you, but what you don't realize is, your income's gonna keep growing, the percentage that you're giving is gonna keep getting smaller, you're going to end up within a year probably not even missing the money that seemed to hurt you a year ago when you started giving it. Now a year later, you're not even missing it. But you'll never change it, which means the power of generosity it will lose its power, it will lose its effectiveness in your life because that amount's not moving the needle at all. It's not forcing you to consider what's going on in your heart. So you need to pick a percentage. And that percentage may change over time, but that percentage will definitely move with your income. It'll move up or it'll move down as your income moves up or down. Your amount will move, but your percentage, it'll keep having an effect on you. Now I don't know what percentage you need to pick. That's a conversation for you to have. Here's my rule of thumb, okay? You got to pick a percentage that causes you to pay attention. You need to pick a percentage that every time you give it, it causes you to go, mm, just a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Like not the percentage that it goes and you're like, oh, well, that was nice. and You just move on. No, the percentage that causes you to go, mm, you know, if I just had that, I could have gone ahead and done. You, you need that kind of percentage. You tracking with me? That it's enough it gets your attention. Because again, this, this is about what's going on in your heart, and if it doesn't get your attention, you'll never deal with the assumption consumption going on in your heart. Well, this is just all for me. So you've you got to get something that causes you to sacrifice a little bit. Now, if you grew up in church, you always heard about the tithe, which is, means 10%. It's not a bad starting place. My wife and I, we've always given 10% or more. You, you may want to pick a different amount. 10% may scare you to death, okay? It doesn't matter, just pick a percentage. Here, here's the only rule I give you. Don't go below 5%, because anything below 5% you're not even gonna notice. So at least make it 5%, but you just pick whatever percentage you need. Now, real quickly, let me talk to some of you who've been followers of Jesus for a while, and you've been practicing this for a while, so you're sitting back going, I got this, I got this, okay? just because you give first save second and then live on the rest and you do it consistently over time that is not a guarantee that money still hasn't mastered your heart or your life it's not some of you you still worry about money way too much and you still trust your heavenly father way too little but you say ah oh, but i give first so i save second. okay okay but you still you're still you know driving straight towards that cliff of consumption or straight into that wall of hoarding If that's true for you, I'll tell you what that means. It means your percentage isn't high enough. That's what that means. It is. It means you've gotten, you may have been stuck on percentage forever. You need to raise the percentage that you choose to give away because you're not giving enough away to counterbalance and break the grip of greed that's going on inside of you. So you've got to figure out what your percentage is. Then the third question is well, where do I give it? Well, where do I give it? Again, Here's my answer to that. You give where God guides and your passion resides. This is what I would suggest. I don't know where I'm supposed to give this money. Okay, you give where God guides and you give where your passion resides. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, you just read the scriptures, you pray about it, you figure out where you feel like God's guiding you to give. And then you ask yourself the question, okay, what is it that I'm passionate about? Those are the two places, and they may be the same place, but those are at least the two places you ought to give your money. Give where God guides, and then give wherever your passion resides. Another way to say this is, ask yourself, what am I grateful for, and what am I broken by? What am I grateful for, and what am I broken by? And then you give your money in those places. You support those causes or those ministries. But you be intentional about it. Be intentional about it. Now, let me wrap up with this. So I was putting this together and I was thinking about this. And I got to the end and I thought, okay, here's my problem. How do I convince these people I'm going to be talking to, all of you, how do I convince you, especially those of you who are skeptics? You know who you are. How do I convince you that when I talk about a subject like this, I actually want what's best for you? How do I convince you that I care about you? And how do I convince you that what I want is something for you, not something from you? And here's what I realized, okay? Here's, here's what I thought. So I have two kids, a six-year-old and a five-year-old. And both of our kids, even at this age, if you walk in their rooms, you will find three jars. Technically, you'll find two jars and a piggy bank. One of them's a stormtrooper and one of them's princesses. You can guess who's got who, okay? So, but, but you'll find three containers, okay? One of them says give in each of their kids' rooms. One of them says give, one of them says save, and one of them's to spend. And every time our kids get money, they do a chore around the house, you know, grandparents give them money, holidays come around, you know, grandparents give them cash, whatever. Every time they get money, we come home and you know the first thing we do is we take 10% of whatever they got and they put it in their give jar. We take 10% and they put it in their save jar and they take the rest of it and put it in their spend container. And so that give jar goes up and it goes down, goes up and it goes down. They'll save it up for a little bit and then they'll come and give it at church. That save jar just keeps going up and up and up. That spin jar, for one of them, it keeps going up and up and for one of them, it disappears as soon as it's in there. You, you know what I mean. So that's fine. That's what it's there for. Okay, so we do this over and over, okay, with our kids. And like I said, when, that, when they get some money in that gift jar, my daughter just did this last week. She came home and she had a giving envelope And she had written her name on it and our address on it. And she walked. I didn't. I did not prompt any of this. And I didn't even know she had the envelope. And she comes walking out of her bedroom and she hands it to me and says, "Daddy, I want you to take this to church. Here's all my give money. And I went ahead and put my save money in there too. And I said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, baby! Like you're supposed to keep the save money. That's the whole point. She doesn't really have anything. She has to save for because her daddy pays for everything. So she." She doesn't care, so she's like, no, 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 I want to give the saved money too, right? So, so I was like, I'm never going to discourage generosity. So I was like, okay, so, you know, and she knows. She's given that money, and it helps people. That's, that's why she gives it here. So, so she did, did this just the other day. So I was thinking, okay, how do I convince these people that I want something for them? So here's what I want to ask you. Why do you think Jen and I teach our kids to give money to this church? Think about this for a minute. Why is that? Because the preacher wants their money. That's why. No, I'm their dad. If I wanted their money, I'd just wait till they were asleep and I'd sneak in their rooms and steal all the money out of their gift jars. And the next morning when they woke up and said, Dad, where'd our money go? I would say, it's the money fairy. It's the opposite of the tooth fairy. It's like the evil tooth fairy. The money fairy showed up, took all your money, and left you rocks. I'm so sorry. And, you know, I just put it in my hand and go, no. I don't, I don't want their money. Well, this is why, man. Like, you're teaching them to give money to the church because the church needs their money. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Like, I sit my kids down, and I say every Sunday afternoon, I see how many starbursts you ate Sunday morning, and I noticed how many goldfish you had. That bill comes to $5.13. So, come on. No, again, of course not. Let me tell you why we teach them to give first, save second, and live on the rest. Because I don't want them mastered by money. And I know as they keep growing up, It's already true for them. It's just going to get more powerful. Their money and their possessions will be the number one competitor for their heart. I don't want them living their lives as if life equals stuff. I want them to learn early on that everything that's placed in their hands is not for their consumption. I want them to learn early on. It's not theirs to begin with. It's on loan from a good and generous God. He is enabling you to manage this for Him. I want them to get to the point where they don't just pray to God when they have an emergency and need something, but they trust Him so much that they just live life interacting with Him, pursuing Him, and partnering with Him, and what He's doing in their life and around in their world. And that won't happen if they live under the assumption it is all for their consumption. That won't happen if they live first, save second, and then give, because that is a me-centered, me-centric kingdom they'd be pursuing. So I'm trying to teach them some habits now that are going to pay off and help them live for an other's focused kingdom later. That's what I want for them, and it's what I want for you. So let me close with this question. Do you have money, or does money have you? Do you have money, or does money have you? The issue is not about money. The issue is about mastery. Let me pray for us. Father, would you give us the wisdom to figure out what to do with this? and Give us enough courage to be honest with ourselves and to see what's really going on in our hearts and what really controls us. Help us to be honest enough with ourselves to admit if we're pursuing a very me-focused instead of others-focused kingdom. And then give us the courage to change to say no to self, because it's in saying no to self that we discover a meaning and a purpose to life far greater than we can on our own. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.